0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. And as Pastor Randy and I share the pulpit over the next few weeks, we're going to do a little mini-series in the Book of Psalms that we're simply calling A Summer in the Psalms. A Summer in the Psalms. And uh, by way of introduction, the Book of Psalms is, of course, the largest book in the Bible. It's a collection of 150 psalms that are songs and prayers. It's referred to as the original hymn book, like the OG hymn book for God's people. But not only is it a hymn book, it's also a prayer book. Because even as every psalm is meant to be sung to the Lord, it's also there're also each prayers that are meant to be prayed. Consequently, the book of Psalms is the most cited book in the New Testament by Jesus and by his apostles, because God's people should be a people who are marked by prayer. Of all people, we ought to know how weak and how frail and how dependent we are upon the Lord, and that should prove itself through prayer. The Bible calls us to pray without ceasing. It also calls us to pray in every situation. And the Psalms really teach us how to do this. They give words to the various circumstances of our lives. And so no matter where you're at in your life when you came in here this morning, no matter what your circumstances are, there's a psalm, there's a prayer that can give voice to the situation that you're in. There are prayers of confidence, prayers of praise, prayers of wisdom, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of enthronement, and prayers of lament. And the psalm we're looking at today in Psalm 71 is a prayer of lament, a psalm of lament. It has some statements of confidence and of praise in it, but really at its core, it's a lament psalm. We don't know for certain who the author is of Psalm 71. Some speculate that it's David. Uh, Some believe that Psalm 71 is actually to be a continuation of Psalm 70. And there's some textual justification for this, but at the end of the day, we don't actually know who wrote the psalm for certain, and so I'll just refer to the author as the psalmist. We don't know his identity, we don't know who he is, but we do know a great deal about him from the psalm. He's likely an older man with a few gray hairs on his head, and he's well acquainted with hardship. He's seen many troubles and calamities throughout his life. And even as he pens this psalm, he finds himself in the midst of yet another precarious situation. We see in the psalm that false accusers and cruel opponents have risen up against him. They've consulted and conspired together and they're seeking his downfall and his disgrace. They want to hurt and shame him. And in the midst of this vicious opposition, what does the psalmist do? He looks back on God's past faithfulness throughout his life. Throughout each and every one of those troubles and calamities that the Lord has already brought him through, and as he does that, as he remembers how time and time again God has proven him to be a, God has proven to be a rock and a fortress and a refuge, as he looks back on God's faithfulness, he finds strength and he finds confidence to persevere in the midst of his current trouble. And this confidence and strength of course, is not found in his aging body, but it's found in his faithful God. He knows that if God was faithful then, then surely God will be faithful now. And so we're going to look at the first half of Psalm 71, verses 1 to 13, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the second half, verses 14 to 24. I've titled this week's message, A Lifelong Refuge. A Lifelong Refuge. And as we study these first 13 verses, we'll see that God is our refuge at every stage of our life. In every situation in which we find ourselves, He's to be our refuge. He was our refuge in the womb. He was our refuge at birth. He ought to be our refuge in our youth. And He ought to be our refuge throughout our lives, even into our golden years. And so whether you've come into this place this morning... And maybe you're on a mountain high, feeling on top of the world. Or maybe you've come in here this morning in a deep valley, not quite knowing when the trial that you're in will come to an end. Whether there's peace and ease and comfort in your life right now, or whether you're in the midst of trouble and opposition. Whether you're a young child, or whether you're in your golden years, maybe somewhere in between. Wherever you're at this morning, The reality is that every one of us ought to learn to make God our continual, lifelong refuge. We ought to learn to take refuge in Him. And so, I'll read the entirety of Psalm 71, and then I'll pray, and we'll just look at the first 13 verses today. But I'll read the whole thing for you now. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me, incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts and your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can open your holy, inerrant, and inspired word and hear from you today. We pray that you would speak to us by your word, that every word that proceeds from my mouth would be anointed by your Holy Spirit. And that as your word goes forth, it would go forth in power. Lord, we pray for the lost to be saved, to find refuge in Jesus Christ. We pray for the saved to be sanctified and strengthened in their faith. And we pray for Christ to be made much of, through your preached word this morning, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as I already mentioned, as should be obvious from just a surface reading of this psalm, the psalmist finds himself in a desperate situation. One of those situations in life that causes you to take a step back and take stock on your life and reflect over what's transpired. Look back and consider what his current situation means for his future. Maybe you've found yourself in a similar situation before. One that causes you to kind of reflect on the entirety of your life. All that God has brought you through. And in this first half of this psalm, as the psalmist does that, as he considers his own difficult situation and he reminds himself of God's past faithfulness, we see three truths about God, each of which require a response. Okay, three truths about God, each of which require a response. Here's the first one, number one. The Lord is our ever-present refuge, come to him. The Lord is our ever-present refuge, come to him. A refuge, of of course, is a place of shelter, a place of safety and security in the midst of trouble or a storm. And so several times throughout this psalm, the Lord is referred to as a refuge, a refuge. But the way that the psalmist does so, refers to the Lord as a refuge in verse 1, is rather interesting. He writes, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge? Let me never be put to shame. If you look down to verse 3, he refers to the Lord as a rock of refuge, in verse 7, as a strong refuge. And throughout many psalms, the Lord is referred to as a refuge, a refuge in the noun form, the Lord is a refuge. But here in verse 1, the psalmist doesn't emphasize that God is a refuge, but rather that he needs to take refuge in him. And so he uses the verb form of refuge. I think this teaches us something simple and obvious, yet profound. God is our refuge, and yet in order for him to actually be our refuge, we must take refuge in him. We have to come to him and take shelter in him. It's not as though in the midst of a trial or a difficult situation, you can sit back and your lazy boy and just expect the Lord to bring you through it. Expect the Lord to be your refuge. It involves some effort and some volition on our part. Simply put, a refuge is not a refuge unless we take refuge in it. And so if we find ourselves in the middle of a gale force 12 storm, from my research, that's the most powerful storm you can find yourself in the midst of a gale force 12 storm, a massive hurricane, and we know of a secure shelter that will keep us safe from the storm no matter what, it doesn't actually become a refuge for us unless we actually take refuge in it. If we simply have knowledge of the shelter's existence, but we don't do anything with that knowledge and we don't enter into it, it's not a refuge for us. If we stand outside of it, but we fail to enter into it in the midst of the storm, then it's not a refuge. We must come to it and actually enter into it for it to be our refuge. We must actively take refuge in it. And so it is with God. The psalmist takes refuge in Him. Verse 2. In your your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. And so here, very early on in the psalm in verse 2, we see that the psalmist is in a desperate situation. This is a cry of desperation. It speaks to the nature of the peril in which the psalmist finds himself. There are four requests of God in this first or in the second verse deliver, rescue, incline your ear, save. Deliver, rescue, incline your ear, save. He knows God is his only hope of deliverance, that only God can rescue him. If you skip down to verse four, He repeats himself, and we'll also see the first clue as to what the nature of his situation is. Verse 4, rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. We see that wicked and unjust and cruel men have risen up against him, and he finds himself in their hands, in their grasp. And we'll learn more about the nature of their opposition later in the passage, but for now I want to focus on how the psalmist repeatedly asks and requests the Lord for rescue. Verse 2 Deliver, rescue, save. Verse 4 Rescue me, O oh my God. It's important to note. We know that God is sovereign over the trials of our lives. We know that He has something for us in the storm, that He's going to use our trials and our sufferings for our good. But we also know from this psalm that it's normal and it's good and it's right to ask for deliverance from those very trials. That even though the Lord can use our trials for good, we aren't supposed to desire troubles or trials. We aren't supposed to desire suffering. We don't relish in hardship. And so the psalmist here prays for rescue, he prays for the trial to end. And I want to note as well that I don't see any caveats or qualifications to his prayer along the lines of, if it be your will, O Lord. Not that there's anything wrong necessarily with praying that, but it's, it's not necessary. He simply prays for rescue. Rescue me, Lord. Rescue me. Christian, whatever trial you may find yourself in the midst of, whatever hardship you may be enduring right now, know that it's okay to pray for deliverance. And it's okay to regularly and frequently and persistently pray for deliverance. It's okay to fervently cry out to God for rescue. I say that because I think sometimes as Christians we're hesitant to do so. Because we know that God's sovereign over the trial and He must have brought it into our life for a reason. We know what the Bible teaches us about our trials, right? We're to consider it joy when we experience trials of many times. And so we ought to learn to rejoice in our trials. But sometimes... Because we know all of this to be true, we're maybe hesitant to pray for deliverance and for rescue, thinking that it's more spiritual to simply embrace it without praying for rescue. But this isn't the example of the psalmist here. He begs the Lord for rescue. This is normal and biblical uh, to do so, to pray for deliverance, pray for rescue, pray for healing. You're not somehow less spiritual if you do so. That's what I'm trying to say. In fact, praying for deliverance is in keeping with the Psalms. Jesus even prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So it's okay to pray for rescue. Let's consider one more verse before moving on to the next point. Verse 3. Be to me a rock of refuge, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Uh, the first three verses of this psalm, verses 1 to 3, are almost identical to Psalm 31, verses 1 to 3. There's a couple small variations, but they're very similar. In fact, the, entire, the entirety of this psalm is really references to earlier psalms in the Psalter. And so the psalmist here is exemplifying how you can take comfort and find encouragement in the psalms in the midst of opposition or struggles. This is what the psalmist is doing. He's looking back at earlier psalms and really making a mashup of uh, these psalms. Uh, but the psalmist adds a unique phrase here in verse 3 that isn't found in the first three verses of Psalm 31, that little phrase in the middle that says, "...to which I may continually come." So he notes that God is a rock of refuge in this verse. He notes notes that God is his rock and his fortress. And really all those words, rock, refuge, and fortress, they're all synonymous. In the Hebrew, the words are very similar, so you'd see how closely related they are. He stresses that God is his refuge, but even as he stresses this, he also stresses that he can continually come to God as his refuge. In other words, that God is an ever-present refuge. What a glorious truth, if you just stop and think about that for a moment, that we can continually come to him. He's always there. He's always available. He's always ready. He'll never forsake us. He'll never be unavailable. And when we come to him to find refuge, whether it be in prayer or in the word or in worship, he immediately invites us in and immediately receives us. He's an ever-present refuge. Now just think for a moment, who else can you say that of in your life? Who else is always available? Who else is an ever-present refuge? I have four little children whom I love very dearly. And they're very young, and so they're at a stage in their life where they're very dependent upon their parents. And so how often do they come to me, Daddy, 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 I need you. Daddy, I have a question. Daddy, can you help me with this? Daddy, can can I sit on your lap? And I invite that. I invite them to come to me with these sorts of requests, of course. But how often do they do so when I'm in the middle of something? <laughs> Whether it be cutting the grass, or doing the dishes, or changing a diaper, or maybe I'm on the phone with someone else. And so I often have to respond to them. Just hang on a second. Okay, just let Daddy finish this first, and then I'll answer your question. Let, can't you see I'm on the phone with someone? Just let Daddy finish this Phone call, and then I'll get to you. You know, God will never ever respond to you that way. God will never respond to you that way. I'm limited in my capacity, but God is not. I'm limited in my availability, and sometimes I have to say, Wait a second, but God will never do that because He's not limited. He has unlimited power and presence. And so He will never say to you, Wait a second. He will never say that. He will always be available, always ready. He will care for you immediately. He will not delay. And so as you come to God, you may not find immediate deliverance, that's not what I'm saying, but you will find immediate refuge. You will find immediate refuge. During the past couple of years, there have been many challenges that we've all faced. Certainly I've faced challenges over the past two years, many trials and hardships of various kinds, some within and some without. Easily the most significant hardships and troubles I've ever faced in my relatively young life have come in the last two years. But in the midst of all those challenges, I found God to be a refuge in a way that I did not know Him to be prior Especially as I met with him in the Psalms. Psalms like this one would come alive in ways that I'd never experienced before. And you know what? In every trouble, in every calamity, no matter how small or how great, I can look back now without hesitation and say that God was faithful. God is faithful. I've learned about the faithfulness of God in a way that I wouldn't have fully come to know had I not experienced those hardships. Perhaps you can relate, because this is the way our Lord works. We'll look at this next week, but if you look quickly at verse 20, you'll see that it's ultimately God who allows the troubles and calamities to come into our lives, that He's sovereign over them. And in part, He makes us to see these troubles and calamities so that we can experience Him as our refuge in a way we wouldn't otherwise. Uh, There's different terms for refuge used here, and the term for refuge in verse 3 can also be translated habitation. And so the psalmist is saying God's not only his refuge, God is his home. In him he lives and moves and has his being. And so no, no matter what's going on, we can always continually come back to the Lord to find shelter and refuge and safety. The door is always unlocked. The open side is always on. He's always willing to invite us in. We have access to His throne of grace through prayer whenever we need it, 24-7. We have access to Him through His holy word whenever we need it, 24-7. But in order to experience Him as our refuge, we must actually take refuge in Him. This doesn't just happen. We must come to Him. We must open the door. We must spend time with Him in His word, We must continually seek Him in prayer and in worship. We must have our eyes of faith continually on Him, that He might become our habitation and we might experience Him as our refuge. The Lord is our ever-present refuge. Come to Him. Secondly, the Lord is our lifelong sustainer. Lean on Him. The Lord is our lifelong sustainer. Lead on Him. In the next few verses, after verse 3, after verse 4, the psalmist looks back to his youth, even back to his birth, even back to his time in his mother's womb to see and to recognize how reliable God has been to care for him and to sustain him throughout his life, even since conception. The certainty of his hope in his current trial is based then on a lifetime of experiencing God's faithfulness to him. God's past faithfulness serves as the grounds for the psalmist's hope in the midst of his current trouble. Simply put, if God was faithful to sustain him then, throughout those different periods of his life, then God will be faithful to sustain him now and into the future. Verse 5. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Now what a wonderful testimony verse 5 is. He's trusted the Lord since his youth. Perhaps he cannot remember a time in which he did not know the Lord. This is what we all pray would be true of our own children, is it not? I certainly pray this for my children, that when they grow old, they would look back and not remember a time where they didn't walk with him or trust him. But then we get to verse 6, and we find that not only was the Lord faithful to him as a youth, the Lord was faithful to him since before his very birth. Verse 6, upon you I have leaned from before my birth, you who are he who took me from my mother's womb. We see here that dependence upon the Lord predates our own birth. Even from the womb, the psalmist has been dependent upon the care of God. Verse 6, then, by the way, unquestionably speaks to the significance, value, and sanctity of life in the womb. The all-wise creator God of the universe took an interest in our lives even from the time we were in our mother's wombs. We were reliant on him to sustain us. We were reliant on him for our development and growth. Psalm 139, 13 to 14 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The implications of this truth in verse 6 are massive. Because if the unborn matter to God, then guess what? That means they ought to matter to His people. They should matter to us. If they are precious to Him, then they ought to be precious to us. If God works to sustain and to protect life in the womb, then so also must we. This is why Christians ought to celebrate the recent death of Roe v. Wade in the States. I can't even believe that's a debate within evangelicalism right now. Okay, lives are being saved in the womb. We can celebrate that. We can cheer that on. We can praise the Lord for that. Verse 6 is also why we ought to regularly pray and stand against the scourge of abortion across our land. As Pastor Jacob has previously said, we live in a time of peak Canadian decadence. In other words, there's never been a time where sin has been this rampant, where rebellion has been this rampant in our country as it is right now. And we need not look very far to see it. The proliferation and increasingly rampant use of pornography in our land, the sexualization of just about everything, The rapid advancement of the LGBT agenda and transgenderism and how it's being so intentionally thrust upon our children's generation, whether it be through public schooling or through kids' television programs or through the books that's offered to them at the local library. I can't even watch an NBA game without it being shoved down my throat in the commercials. How about this example? The suspension of charter rights over the past two years, basic human rights being put aside, and on and on the list goes. But the pinnacle of it all, of all this decadence, is the nearly four million little lives that have been torn apart in their mother's wombs over the past few decades in our country. And the worst part is most people don't even think twice. It's not even a discussion. It's not even up for debate here north of the border. That ought to grieve our hearts because it grieves his heart. Christian, make no mistake, God cares about life in the womb. The psalmist reminds us of this in verse 6. In fact, when it says there, you are he who took me from my mother's womb, the language here is almost describing the Lord as the one who delivered the baby, as though he was the midwife who was lovingly there cutting the umbilical cord. We were dependent upon the Lord before we even took our first breath. Did you know that A baby's heart can start beating as early as five weeks in utero. Okay, a lot of women don't even know they're pregnant then, and they've already got a little heartbeat inside of them that's not their own. And yet every single one of those heartbeats is dependent upon the Lord who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the Bible says, and in whom all things hold together, because he is the one who sustains life in the womb. He is the one who's sovereign over our birth, and he's the one who will continue to sustain us in our youth. He is faithful. And so the psalmist considers all of this, and naturally the result is what? It's worship. Verse six, my praise is continually of you. W.S. Plumer said, the care of God over little children by their parents, by, their, by his angels, and by his direct exercise of power is astonishing. If we saw no other proof of God's providence, his care of little children ought to remove all skepticism on the subject. Such tokens of divine regard as the psalmist had received in his formation, birth, and protection demanded that his lips should now be opened in praise. End quote. And so the psalmist considers how God was faithful to him in times past, even in the womb. And what's the result? He cannot help but praise the Lord. And this too must be our response as we look back on the past faithfulness of God and we consider how He sustained us even from the time we were in our mother's womb. And for us as Christians, we have all the more reason to worship and to praise Him as we think back on the Lord's past faithfulness to us because not only was He faithful to sustain us in the womb, but before the foundations of the world were ever laid, it said He chose us, that we were on His heart, that we had to lean on His sovereignty in a sense. We were dependent upon his mercy, and so how could we not but praise him continually as the psalmist does here? Let's continue, verse 7. He says, I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. Now, that's an interesting word there, portent. I didn't know what that was prior to studying it this week. It means an ominous sign or warning. So think of it as an example of what not to be like. Son, don't be like that person. That's a portent, an ominous sign. The word is used actually in Deuteronomy 28 verse 46. It's it's translated as sign there, but it's the same Hebrew word for portent. Deuteronomy 28 verse 46, which after speaking about the curses of God that will befall someone for failing to keep his commandments, uh, says that that uh, that type of a person would be a portent, would be a, a, a symbol of the judgment of God. They will be punished and will become a portent They're a warning of what happens to you when you break the law of God. The psalmist here is being treated as his, by his opponents as though he were a portent, this ominous warning. If you skip down to verses 10 to 11, we find out there that his opponents believe that God has forsaken him, that he's been cursed of God somehow. And they use this false accusation as justification to pursue and to seize him. Believing that this time God's not going to deliver him because he's forsaken him. And just a side note, it's amazing how often this happens in the Psalter. How often the Lord's worshiper has false accusations made against him. Trying to take him down over and over again. His enemies use lies to try to take him down. Even as that's amazing to me, it really shouldn't be that surprising. Because the devil is the father of lies. This is how he works. This is what happened to Jesus Christ. He had false accusations made about him, and he was crucified for it. But the psalmist here in Psalm 71 knows the truth. And so again, in verse 7, he reminds himself that God is his strong refuge. This time he adds that adjective, strong. He's not just any refuge, he's a strong refuge. Strong enough to thwart the attacks of his enemies here. Strong enough to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one strong enough to bring him safely to glory. God is his strong refuge. And so, after verse 7 again, we see in verse 8, that as he thinks about all this, it leads him to worship. His mouth is filled with God's praise and with his glory all day long, it says. I want to note something here, that for the psalmist, the singing doesn't stop when the times get tough. The singing doesn't stop when the times get tough. In fact, one could argue that singing God's praises becomes all the more important in the difficult seasons of life because of the effect that it tends to have on our own soul. Worshipping God helps us refocus our hearts and set our minds on the things that are above. It helps renew that eternal perspective in us that's so needed in the midst of temporal chaos. It reminds us of important truths that we ought to cling to during troubled times. And of course, it helps us fix our eyes on the Savior when the waves are crashing down all around us. And so worship is so important in all these ways and more. It's a means of warfare against the enemy. And so several times throughout this psalm, the psalmist basically breaks out in spontaneous praise, praising the Lord. And I believe it's in doing that it's in turning to the Lord in worship that he's taking refuge in him. That there's a link here between taking refuge in the Lord and worshiping him. One is part of the other. In other words, if worship ceases, there will be no refuge. Now let's look at verse 9. Now this is the verse in our, uh, in our psalm that the, title is, the psalm is titled after. Of course, the titles were not in the original text, but nevertheless, our psalm is titled after this in our Bibles. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. So we find out here that the psalmist is not a youth anymore. He's not in that season of life. He's not a young man. He's in the time of his old age. And so what does he find? Well, he finds he's not as strong as he once was. His strength is more easily spent. And so now he needs God more than ever. We learn from this that apparently the problems and the trials of life continue on into our old age. Sorry to break it to you, young people. Sometimes we might think when we're younger and we might hope that life must get easier the older we get. You know, once we retire... There'll be no more dirty diapers, there'll be no more 9 to 5, hopefully there'll be no more mortgage payments, if we've managed our money well. But as we see in this psalm, and as I'm sure all of the older folks in the room can attest to, the problems and the troubles of life continue even into our golden years. And so just as the psalmist needed God in the womb, just as he needed him when he was a young man, so now he needs him in his old age. And his strength is spent, he says. Perhaps some of you can relate. It seems as though after a certain age in our lives, we only get weaker from that day on. We hit a peak and then it's just, we grow in weakness as the years go by. And so I'm in my mid-30s right now, still relatively young man, I think. But that certain age for me was about 30 years old. And I can start to see the effects of aging in different ways. Some of you might laugh, you have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) But I notice a few changes. I'm a little slower on the basketball court than I used to be. I wake up some mornings and I have lower back pain. I never had that in my 20s. I don't know where that came from. I take longer to recover after a minor injury or a tiresome workout. And while I know these are only minor inconveniences, I also know It's just going to get worse from here on out. I've hit the peak and now I'm getting weaker as the years go by. But even as our strength fails us more and more, uh, the older we get, the reality is that God never will, will he? He will not cast out his people even when their strength runs out, even when their strength runs out. Even when we come to an age where we feel as though we are less and less capable of serving him in the way we once did, he will not forsake us because the Lord is our lifelong sustainer. And so whether you're here and you're a child or you're a youth or you're a young adult or you're in your middle ages or you're in your golden years, it doesn't matter. Really, all of us are weak apart from the Lord. And so we are all wholly dependent upon the Lord to sustain us just as we were in the womb. It hasn't changed. And so all that to say, won't you learn to lean on him? Won't you learn to acknowledge your need for God and learn to depend upon his sovereign care over your life? And then as you do so and you see his faithfulness to care for you and to provide for you, seek to live a life of worship to him, that your mouth may be filled with the praise and glory of the Lord all day, as the psalmist is here. The Lord is our lifelong sustainer. Lean on him. Finally, number three, the Lord is our covenant keeper. Call out to him. The Lord is our covenant keeper. Call out to him. We've already briefly discussed verses 10 to 11. There we learned more about the nature of the psalmist's opponents, that they were opportunistic liars that sought an opportune time When he found himself in the midst of trouble to try to take down the psalmist, seeking his downfall. When on the surface it seemed as though God had forsaken him, now was the time they decided to pursue him. And so let's see how he responds in verses 12 to 13. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. Okay, this is an, what's known as an imprecatory prayer in these verses. He asked the Lord to help him in verse 12, and then he unpacks specifically what he means by that in verse 13. He asked the Lord to help him by putting his enemies to shame, consuming them, and covering them with scorn and dis- disgrace. Okay, this is quite the prayer. And some Christians, they come to prayers like these and they're not really sure what to do with them, right? Because they know in the Gospels, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to pray for our enemies. And even exemplifies how to do this when he's hanging on the cross, praying for his accusers. And yet on the other hand, we come to a verse like this and we find this psalmist, who is in his wise old age, by the way, after living a life of devotion to God, Praying for the downfall of his enemies, that God would consume them and destroy them and humiliate them. And so how do we make sense of this tension? Well, as many of you know, the issue of imprecatory prayers is not unique to Psalm 71. There are statements of imprecation all over the Psalter. The book I read said that there are 45 or so imprecatory requests made throughout the Psalms. Direct requests asking for judgment to befall the enemies of God. And there are even more verses that express desire for God's judgment to fall upon His enemies. So you have 45 explicit requests, and then you have even more verses expressing a desire for people to be punished. How do we make sense of this? Well, it's worth noting that in all cases, the psalmist never takes personal vengeance, never takes personal revenge. He doesn't take the situation into his own hands and seek to physically destroy his enemies himself. Rather, he leaves the justice, he leaves the vengeance to God. James E. Adams, in his book, he wrote a whole book on imprecatory prayers called War Psalms of the Prince of Peace. He says this about imprecatory prayers listen closely, he says, it should be noted that all of these cries for justice commit the problem to the Lord and leave vengeance to God. They show faith toward God in the context of real life situations, and at the same time express a holy moral indignation against all who would set themselves against God's king and kingdom. This is the spirit of the Psalms from beginning to end. He's right, it's all throughout the Psalter. Here in Psalm 71, the psalmist leaves the justice to God, and he asks the Lord to shame and consume his opponents. And what you have to realize that will maybe help you come to terms with this is what he's actually doing is asking God to be faithful to his word. That's all he's doing. I've already noted a connection to the passage in Deuteronomy 28 with the use of that word portent in verse 7. It harkens back to Deuteronomy 28, verse 46 which speaks of those on whom the judgments and curses of God will fall for breaking his covenant. Well, here in verses 12 to 13, essentially the psalmist is praying, God, would you make them as a portent? They're the ones that haven't followed your commandments. And so would all the curses and judgments recorded in Deuteronomy 28, would it befall them for being rebellious and for breaking your law? Would it come upon their heads? In other words, would you be faithful to uphold your word and your covenant? Would you do what you say you would do with lawbreakers? That they would be appropriately punished. Imprecatory prayers like this one, then, are not prayers for personal revenge, but rather they're prayers for God to uphold his justice and his word. They're prayers that recognize that God keeps his covenant, he keeps his word, and he will be faithful to judge lawbreakers. And so when you see imprecatory prayers, and even when you pray them yourself as you ought to, because we ought to follow the psalmist's example, as you pray them yourself at times against the enemies of the Lord, don't think of them ever as prayers of revenge, that's not what they are, but rather think of them as calling upon the Lord to be faithful to His word. Think of them as calling the Lord to be just and to punish those who break His law. When people rise up against you to falsely accuse you or to persecute you for your faith, or when you kind of zoom out and just look at all that's going on in the world, the blatant rebellion and hatred for God, and you see all the injustice, remember the Word of God, that God's justice will never fail, that He will not let sin go unpunished, that every single sin will be dealt with either on the cross or on Judgment Day, and that God will even bring about earthly consequences for people's sin in this life at times remember that and take heart in that and then cry out to god for justice cry out for him to uphold his word and then as you do so rest assured he will he will he is faithful to every last one of his promises even his promises toward those who would break his law and would not find shelter in jesus christ he is a covenant keeping god we're reminded of that several times in this psalm. Every time you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in this psalm and throughout the psalter, it's using the covenant-keeping name for God, his personal name. And it reminds us that God is a God who keeps his word, that he is faithful. That's all the psalmist is, is doing there. He's asking the Lord to be faithful to his word. The Lord is our ever-present refuge. Come to him. The Lord is our lifelong sustainer, lean on him. The Lord is our covenant keeper, call out to him. He's our lifelong refuge in the good times and the bad, no matter how young or how old we are. Maybe some of you have come in here this morning looking for exactly that, looking for refuge. You've been disillusioned by all that's going on in the world. You've been beaten up these last few months and years by all that's taking place. And everywhere else you've looked to find refuge has failed you. Your government has failed you. The ways of this world have failed you. The false ideologies and religions out there have failed you. Your own sin and your own vices have failed you. They've left you wanting. I'm here to tell you this morning that your search for shelter, your search for security, your search for truth is over. Because God is the strong refuge that you've been looking for. He is the only one who's worthy of your full trust. He's the only one who's worthy of your hope and the only one who's worthy of your worship. And he's the only one that can cleanse you from your sin and rid you of your guilt and grant you forgiveness. And so as the psalmist does, if that's you today, you're looking for a refuge. Would you come to Jesus today? Would you come to the Lord? Would you find refuge in God? You say, how do I do that? Well, it starts with Jesus Christ. Jesus invites you to come to him today. He says that all who are burdened and heavy laden can come to him and find rest. This begins, of course, with repentance and faith. Acknowledge that you, like the opponents of this psalm, has broken God's laws. Really, every last one of us deserves to have verse 13 prayed of us. We deserve to have the curses of God befall us for our sin against him and for our law breaking. Acknowledge the fact that you've broken God's law, you've sinned against him. And then know that the good news of the gospel is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is any man who is hanged on a tree. Christ was cursed on the cross as though he were a lawbreaker. He bore our sin and our guilt in our place. The righteous died for the unrighteous. And then, of course, on the third day he was raised from the dead. And if you come to him... Through repentance and faith this morning, you can find refuge from the wrath of God. And then throughout your life, you'll find refuge from the storms of this world. And so I invite you to come to him today. He's the only answer. There's no other answer. He's it. And for the rest of us, may we learn to continually take refuge in God each and every day, as the psalmist does in this psalm. May the grounds for our continued hope in this world be the past faithfulness of God, that we've experienced throughout our lives, even from the time we were in our mother's wombs. He's been faithful to us in ways we don't even know since before we were even born. And if he was faithful to us then, we can believe in faith he's going to be faithful to us now and in the future. So that means we don't have to worry about tomorrow. We don't have to fret about our circumstances. Rather, we can simply come to the Lord and lean on him and cry out to him, and take refuge in Him, whether we're young or whether we're old, and praise Him continually, knowing that in one way or another, deliverance is coming.